Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. If you would, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Our scripture reading, we're going to tag the very end of what we read last week just to give you the context, and then we'll read Acts chapter 11, verse 27, through chapter 12, verse 11. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over uh, to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. And centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know where, uh, what was being done by the, that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, And from all the Jewish people we're expecting. This is God's word. It is absolutely true. And it's given to us in love. You can be seated. Well, we're uh, going to be looking at uh, really all of chapter 12 of Acts. We just read a portion of it. But the way that this story goes is Peter uh, had been arrested. Uh, James, one of the other uh, early apostles, had been arrested and put to death. And now Peter was arrested and awaiting the very same treatment, and we're told that uh, the apostles and the gathered church prayed, the angel set Peter free. The rest of the chapter is going to go on. Peter is going to show up uh, at Mary, John Mark's mother's house, where the church was gathered, and he's going to knock on the door, and a woman comes to the door, uh, and she doesn't believe that it's him. She says, well, this can't be Peter. We know that Peter is arrested. And so she goes and she tells the others, they come, and sure enough, it's Peter. God had answered their prayers. 
And then Herod, the very next day, I'm actually going to read that part of the chapter to us. This is uh, uh, Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 20. Here's the way the chapter ends. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. So that's a, a coastal peoples across the sea. Uh, not some of his uh, direct uh, people that he governed, but some people with whom he had conflict. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, so they found an insider to present their case before Herod, the king, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat on his throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The main thing uh, to see in this chapter, there are other things to see, but today this is the one thing that you're going to see, <laughs> is the, the irony of what happens here. The chapter starts, James is dead, Peter is in prison, and Herod's reign seems unquestioned and unchallenged. And then by the end of chapter, the end of chapter 12, Herod's dead, Peter's free, and the word of God is spreading unhindered in the world. And it's this reversal that's the main point of chapter 12. That it starts with the way that we think the world always works. That the powerful wield their power with absolute impunity. That the weak are often victimized and stuck without recourse. And yet by the end, it's the weak. It's the church armed only with prayer going to God. It's Peter walking free out of Herod's cell, and it's Herod judged by God. What we're going to see, I did, have, I did find three points, <laughs> is we're going to hear a word in this story, a word about power, a word about prayer, and a word about politics in this story. The first is a word about power. Because what we see here is, a, is a, a picture of what the New Testament and the Old describe, which there is in our world a conflict of powers. We saw it uh, often in God's dealing with his people in the Old Testament, that they often were weak in the world's eyes, a small country at the intersection of the world's great powers, carted into slavery in Egypt, invaded by the Assyrians, invaded by the Babylonians, invaded by the Greeks and now by the Romans, who've installed uh, their little dynasty of puppet kings, Herod and his children, to rule over the people of Israel. And what we see is that there was a conflict between Israel, the people of God, and the powers that surrounded them. And we see that same conflict going forward in the church. In the book of Acts, we see this conflict between powers that the church is a power that seems weak, right? That the church uh, is the people of God constituted by faith in Jesus the King. And Jesus promises that all authority in heaven and on earth is his and that he is with his people, that he is the real power in the world to be contended with. And yet, 
There are other powers that rule this world. The New Testament will at times call these the principalities and powers. This is the mixture of both supernatural powers and their human powers that rule over this world. And what we see in this story, what we see throughout the the, the growth of the church in Acts, is that the powers of this world do not respond kindly to the powers of the kingdom, the power that's inbreaking into the world through Jesus and through his people. And so we see a conflict emerge between the church and the world. The church's way of power and the world's way of power. Now it should be said that the church is not in conflict with the world in the sense that we are against the world. Right? When Jesus calls us to follow him, he means for us, when he, te- when he sits down to teach and teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches us to live a way of life that is different than the world, that's apart from the world, but that's for the sake of the world, right? That the church would learn to live under Jesus' direction. And there's times when that's going to put us in a, in a seeming place of incongruity with our neighbors as we learn to order our lives around his priorities, around his values. But it's for the sake of the world. It's not against our neighbors. It's not against those who believe differently, right? But that we are a counterculture for the good of the world. But there are at times in the life of the church when the world has set itself against the church. And that's what we see happening here in Herod's life when he sets out to persecute the church. Now, a word about this guy, Herod. Herod was the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the man who was on the throne of Judea when Jesus was born. Right, if you remember the stories, uh, we read some of these at Christmas. Right, you remember uh, when Mary conceives Jesus and she goes to God with the song of praise. It's become known to us as the Magnificat from those first words, my soul magnifies the Lord. What Mary sang, a part of her song was this, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Well, old Herod the Great, I don't know if he heard these words or not, but he certainly understood what was happening. Because he thought to himself, he has brought down the mighty from his thrones, and he thought, "Uh uh-oh, that's me. I am the mighty one on his throne." I am the one who has power in this world that if somebody is coming to to lift up the weak and to cast down the rulers from their throne, not on my watch they're not. And so remember, the first thing that he did was he tried to manipulate the three wise men from the east who came seeking. Jesus told him to report back. Instead, uh, the three wise men allow. uh, They inform uh, Mary and Joseph. They flee to Egypt. And Herod then uh, launches a murderous campaign against all of the children born in the region of Bethlehem at about that age. And so Herod, Herod the Great, 
was a man who was obsessed with preserving his power. So obsessed with preserving his power that he murdered many of his own children who were possible uh, claimants to his throne. And so his grandson, this Herod, had learned something of his grandfather's ways. And he had learned that if there's, a, if there's a movement going on that's claiming that there is a new king, that there is a Messiah, the, the prophesied king of the Israelites, that he also had better stop it. And so he launches out. And first he kills James, the apostle. And then, and this is going to be telling about the way that he governs, when he saw that it was pleasing to the Jews, he grabbed Peter also. Because the thing that you need to understand about the way that Herod and the Herodians, that's what we, we call his family, about the way that they governed, was that they were fixated, they were, uh, fixated on Roman power. They were servants of the empire. But they did it dressed in a Jewish guise. Herod rebuilt the temple. Herod did some things to present himself to the people of Israel as though he was one of their kings. He seized for himself the idea of being a king like David and David's descendants. But his ends were always the empire's ends. In his means, the ways of getting what he wanted were the empire's means, right? They were the sword, putting people to death. They were the prison imprisoning those who didn't comply, right? That he was uh, what the Old Testament would call a king just like the kings of the nations, bent on using his power to keep his power. And so he comes into conflict with the power of the church in this story. You know, we should... The church and the world are always in a type of conflict. It's been, uh, it's been said, and I think it's true, that in the West, for about the past hundred years, we've been moving into what some call a post-Christian era in the West. What that means to us is not uh, that we are likely to be arrested and thrown into jail, like Peter was. For many uh, around the world, that is, that is the case. Right? You may, you may remember a couple of years ago, we were praying for our brothers and sisters at uh, Covenant Rain Christian Church in China, when the pastor and many of his elders one night were just arrested in the middle of the night where his church was told it couldn't worship. We've been praying, haven't we, for, uh, you guys have been so faithful in praying and asking for our, uh, about my pastor friend in Afghanistan, who now lives under Taliban rule, unable in many ways to practice his faith publicly. So there are places in the world where the church's conflict with the world does mean persecution in that way. But here, most often, what, is it, what it's meant is, it, is that Christians have gone through an experience of being decentered in our culture, right? We've been used to kind of an assumed Christian language in our culture, an, assu an assumption that if you weren't something else, that like the default was set to Christian, right? So unless you told me that you were Hindu or Muslim or Jewish, we assume, oh, well, you're just a normal Christian like everybody else. And we're used to Christian ways being at the center, even when they were followed in ways that are hypocritical and abusive and difficult, right? It's not to say that in the West, our country's always behaved Christianly. It's saying that Christian currency bought influence and it worked at the center of culture. 
And now what we've, many of us have experienced is the realization that we're increasingly living our lives not at the center of cultural power, but from its margins. And the experience is actually not all that dissimilar, right? When you're used to being at the center, being bumped to the side a little bit, feels like the world is getting turned upside down. And what we need to see in this story is that the church is indeed about power. Right? We do have a type of power, but, but the power of the church is not the same as the power of Herod. Right? That we need to be careful about doing, seeking the agenda of Jesus using the means of Herod. Right? Herod was fixated on winning, on beating, on using his power to win more power, on not letting it go. He was willing right, to trade, to, to manipulate the pieties of the Jewish people in order to advance his agenda, right, to sell them on uh, dressing his agenda in their wares. And, and they fell for it, many. And so we need to be aware of the temptation of seeking good ends, the ends of Jesus, the ends of the kingdom, in the ways of the world the ways bent on power and domination. Instead, what do we see this church doing? They're seeking power. They already know all power in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And so when they find themselves in a position of seeming powerlessness, what do they do? They pray, right? That they recognize that their power is rooted in prayer, that their power is rooted in a life-giving connection with God. The God of the universe, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, the God who resurrected Jesus as king and seated him at the right hand of the Father, that they have a direct line to the Messiah, to the ruling king of the earth. And that is where they go when it comes time to pray. When it comes time when they feel their powerlessness, they go to Jesus in prayer. I wonder sometimes if my prayerlessness isn't rooted in my own sense that I have enough power to get my job done in life, right? It's, ultimate, it's, it's also often the experience of powerlessness, the experience of bumping up against our own lack of control, lack of resources, lack of ability that leads us to say, Jesus, help, Lord, help. And so we're told that while Herod rests, confident that he's in control and that the people are under his thumb and that Peter is in prison. While he rests in that reality, we're told, so Peter was kept in prison, verse 5, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Earnest prayer. Earnest prayer. Think about my own prayer life and whether or not I would often describe my prayers as earnest. Right, oftentimes, my prayers are rushed between a cup of coffee and getting kids to school, uh, and then quickly sidelined by the rest of my day. But these were people who were committed and were earnest in their prayer. They gathered together to pray. And then the amazing thing, God answers their prayer. He sends an angel. This is clearly a supernatural intervention. He sends an angel, sets Peter free. And then verse 12, when Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered, 
John Mark is, we believe, the author of the Gospel of Mark, and he was Barnabas, who we met last week. It was his cousin. So he goes to Mary's house where they're gathered, and when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. That's an interesting detail. We don't get many uh, random names thrown in, but Rhoda, the servant that was working at uh, Mary's house, gets recorded for us here. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, listen to this, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, no, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. I love this. They're praying. They're they're committed enough to the idea of prayer that they're doing it. But when God answers their prayer, they say, shut up. You're out of your mind. That can't have really happened. Right? And I think we know what this is like, right? We pray, but ultimately we don't ultimately expect God to do anything about it. Right? We get in this idea in our heads. I know that I live with this. The idea that, yeah, prayer does something, but what prayer does is mostly in me. And there's something true in that, isn't there? That God uses our persistence in prayer. He uses our fellowship with him in prayer, our sitting with him in prayer to deepen us. He does use prayer to change us. But oftentimes, that's kind of a mask for a faithlessness that doesn't expect God to actually change the world. Right? Oh, he'll use it for me. It's kind of psychological more than anything. But he's not actually going to do what I ask him to do. And uh, we're a Presbyterian church, meaning we're a part of the kind of the the Reformed tradition of the church. And this is especially, I think, hard for us. Why? Because on the one hand, we believe that God is in sovereign control of all things, that God rules his world as a king and God orders the world to accomplish his purposes. But then we're told, pray, ask God for what you desire, ask God for what only he can do. And sometimes in our human minds, it's hard to square those things. We go, well, look, if God's going to do what God's going to do, if he's already made up his mind what he's going to do, then why are we praying? But to believe in the sovereignty of God is not to be a fatalist, right? It's not to say, well, you know what? Whatever God's going to do, God's going to do. Because God, in his kingship, in his sovereignty, has ordained not only what he's going to do, But he has ordained that he's going to listen to the prayers of his people and be moved by the prayers of his people to accomplish his work in the world. That when we pray, it actually really does move God. That it moves heaven and changes earth. Right? This is how we know it. You know, sometimes we read passages in the Old Testament where it goes, you know, Moses went up on the mountain and he argued with God. He asked God to spare and God did it. And we go, wow, how did Moses talk God out of something? But God has always been committed to listening to the prayers of his people, that God listens when we pray. And then when Peter shows up, they're slow to believe. And this exposes the shallowness of their faith. Yeah, they knew their power was in prayer. But then when God actually intervenes and does something, it shocks and amazes us. And so it's a word about power, it's a word about prayer, and then finally it's a word about politics. You know, this last bit here, Herod, 
put on his royal robes, took his seat on the throne, and delivered an oration. So he's standing as king, sitting in his rule, and he's preaching. And all the people say to him, this is the voice of a god and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. So we can infer there that these men say, you're a God, not a man. And Herod didn't correct them, right? He didn't say, no, 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 no. You're playing with fire. I'm not a God. I'm just a king. No, he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. A little more on that. A little more on the, this is the voice of God stuff. You know, we actually have a historical record. Uh, Josephus, one of our earliest historians, tells us uh, that Herod, he tells the same story, that Herod died very suddenly, uh, that, he, that his stomach grew painfully ill, and that he, about five, year, five days later, he died. Uh, a medical historian tells us that it wasn't uncommon in the world at this time uh, for people to be afflicted by uh, worms in their gut, like digestive system worms. Glad I live now. We've got our troubles, but eaten alive by worms from the inside doesn't seem to be one of them. And so from a historian's perspective, from a medical perspective, he got sick very quickly and died. From Luke's perspective, that was the judgment of God against him for pretending to the throne of God. You know, it's often been said, I think we say it a lot these days, we may have even said it around here, that the gospel, that the Christian gospel is not, uh, Christianity is not political. And within certain qualifications, that's true. The Christian gospel is not partisan, right? The Christian gospel can't be hung on the back of an elephant or a donkey and used to baptize a partisan political party as God's party. So, right, and in, in, in I use that because it's America. If I was preaching somewhere else, the gospel doesn't chart directly onto any political party in any country of the earth. But it's not exactly correct to say that the gospel isn't political. Because at the center of what we believe is that Jesus is king. Right? At the center of what we believe is that God made this world for himself that he made us as his image bearers that were accountable to him, and that now Jesus, crucified, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of God, is the world's true king. And so, the message of the gospel is a political message. It's Jesus as king. Now, there are different polit ways that men and women govern themselves. Politics uh, is essentially you know, a project that we're in with our neighbors, to figure out how to order our lives, right? There's, there's Christians engaged in politics. There's non-Christians engaged in politics. But from a Christian perspective, there's certain guardrails around politics. And Herod clearly steps all over them. And the guardrail is at the pretension to ultimate power, right? Notice, he did, he's not struck down because he's in power. He's not struck down because he's a king. He wouldn't, you know, there's... In, in this world, people have power. But where power becomes idolatry is in when one image bearer exalts himself over his other image bearers and claims the prerogatives of the creator. And into that world, Jesus comes with judgment. Right? The, the, the mistake that we make often around politics is to, create, is to, to uh, confuse 
penultimate things, right? Things that are important, but not ultimate, with what's ultimate. And Herod, all too happily, takes this confusion of politics with the ultimate. And he says, yeah, worship me as God. And he's judged for it. There's something in this that should lead us to approach all human rulers with a sense of sobriety and humility. A sense of recognizing that no matter how much power they seem to hold in this world, that ultimate power rests in Jesus the King. And when King Jesus intervenes in the world, what happens is what happens in this story. What do we see here? Salvation and judgment. Right? That's what God's rule brings. It brings salvation and judgment. Those are two, two uh, sides of the same coin. Salvation for some, judgment for some. Jesus, our great king, comes and he offers us mercy, right? He offers us that, that we don't have to bear our own guilt before the king. We don't have to bear the guilt of our own sin before him. He can bear our sin on our behalf on the cross. Because if we bear our own sin, right, if we appear before him in our own sin, we look a whole lot like Herod, right? Herod's sin is not all that much different than Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, desiring to be their own king. We all have a little Herod in us that wants to order our own world, get our own way, and doesn't care who we step on to do so. And under that, we face judgment. But under the reign of Jesus, under his grace, and we trust him for mercy, we can experience salvation. Peter was under the reign and imprisonment of, of Herod. But the scriptures tell us that every one of us is under the reign and imprisonment of sin. And that through the reign of Jesus, through, through placing our faith in him, we can, just as Peter walked free of his shackles out of that prison, we can walk free out of fear of judgment, out of imprisonment to sin, knowing that when Jesus intervenes, that we are those who are saved and delighted in by him, his faithful and trusting people. Ultimately, we're either trusting in Jesus or trust, we're either trusting in what can't be seen in his power or trusting in the power of this world. In one, there's security and hope, even though at times it may look like we're suffering. Right? In this world, you know, it would be nice, wouldn't it, if all of the Herods got judged immediately and all of the Peters got set free immediately. But it doesn't. In this world, we look for the ultimate justice that will come when Jesus redeems his people, when he casts down the wicked, when he gathers us to himself and he brings his kingdom. And until then, we follow him in faith, and we watch him in faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you uh, acknowledging that just like uh, the church in Acts, we are without hope in our own power. Lord, that when you look at, um, at the outward signs of the church and the outward signs of the world, it seems as though we are weak and powerless. And yet, Lord, in you and your resurrection and the power of your spirit, we hold great power. Lord Jesus, you tell us that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. That means that every other human that claims power is downstream of you. Every human power will be judged for what they do with their power. 
And so, Lord, help us to fix our eyes on the one who holds all power, all authority. Lord Jesus, help us to follow you by faith, to order our lives under your reign, and to look with joy to your coming. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.